Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of. One that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com good morning peeps and welcome to woke af daily with me your girl danielle moody recording from the brooklyn bunker folks i want to start out this morning with unpacking an article that our friend dr jonathan metzel will reference in our interview that is coming up next and you know There are a lot of times um, when political analysts, uh, scholars will dig into why they believe um, the Democratic Party is facing the challenges that it is facing, why Republicans seem to be able to win these culture wars that they start. And they will offer uh, in their deep dives Uh, Many of the reasons and the ways in which Democrats um, need to stay away from progressivism, that Democrats need to pay attention to quote unquote uh, working class voters and so on and so forth. And I have to tell you that I am really tired of having the same conversations over and over again. And I'm also really tired of folks having conversations and debates and totally disregarding the role that race and racism plays. It is intellectually dishonest to continue to have conversations about how and why our democracy is failing and considering and and continuing to have conversations and talk about particular classes of voters when in fact you were just talking about white people and how to keep white people happy so that the Democratic Party can win. And when people continue to say things, like, oh, well, we need to go after swing voters and we need to uh, move at a pace that is comfortable for the majority. What you are saying 
is that by even articulating the reality that is racism and segregation in this country, that Democrats will be doing themselves a disservice, that Republicans are able to continue to use the politics of manipulation and identity politics for their gain while stirring the pot for their aggrieved white working class base. But that Democrats, if you were to then actually peel apart the lump, the lumping of people of color and have honest conversations about the needs of these groups and how they were, are reflected back in the needs of the majority of Americans, then somehow you're going to piss off white people and then you're going to lose everything. The fact remains, folks, and I don't know how many fucking times that we have to say this, White men don't vote for Democrats. White women don't vote for Democrats. They never fucking have, and they never will again. Why? Because once the party opened itself up to people of color and started to advance policies and initiatives that would benefit those that were purposefully marginalized and left out of the American dream, white people fled. And so the only way to have an honest conversation about the direction that this country is going to go in is to say whether or not Democrats will once again follow in the footsteps of Republicans and ignore their growing base, ignore the demographic, the demographic shift in favor of continuing to go after and water down policies so that white people remain fucking comfortable. There is no difference in the article that I'm about to read to you and what it is that DeSantis is doing in Florida to, to ensure that white Floridians remain comfortable, right? Because until we decide that we are no longer going to offer up a body politic that is centered on whiteness, white wealth, white comfort, white growth, then we are never going to actually solve the problems that are facing this country. Because you see here in the conversation that Jonathan and I will have, which I think is in my humble opinion, one of the most important conversations that Jonathan and I have had in the last two years together. It is the most honest conversation that we have had, not just talking about one particular issue, whether it's COVID or gun rights or voting rights, but no, talking about the collective, right? Because that is the problem in general with America right now is that we don't talk about the collective, that we don't talk about the community, that instead we only talk about one group and that is white people. And we use every single fucking phrase and word to describe the needs of white people without journalists and analysts and scholars actually using the word white. And I am tired of the bullshit and we'll call it out. So here is this article right now in the, that was up in the Washington post earlier this week. And it's entitled Democrats are engaged in a new politics of evasion that could cost them in 2024, new study says. And it's written by Dan Balls, who's the chief correspondent. And it brings up um, this new report that is being done 33 years after the original by Elaine Kamrak and William A. Galston. And these are two scholars from the Brookings Institute that initially wrote uh, The Politics of Evasion back in 1989 after Mike Dukakis uh, lost the presidential race. And this was their examination because over the last several 
right? I th- believe it was the last six presidential elections between, I believe it is 1968 and 1989, Democrats lost all but one. Jimmy Carter, who would then only go to serve one term. Republicans were winning all of them and not only winning, but winning the electoral votes in a significant margin as compared to Democrats. Now we have to understand that what was happening 33 years ago is not the same as what is happening now. Climate change wasn't even in our lexicon at that time, right? And the fact is, while killings of black people, while the the racial wealth gap was still in existence, while all of these things, we weren't having those conversations out in the open because no one gave a shit about black people. Now, that's not to say that people actually care now because they do not. But I want to unpack pieces of this article and pieces of the quotes that are taken from the report that was done um, by uh, the the um, this group, these two po- uh, two political people um, at the Progressive Policy Institute. Excuse me. So these two folks, William Galston and Elaine Kamrak wrote this report initially 33 years ago. They have revamped it for the politics of this moment, and it's been covered in the Washington Post. Here's one of their opening quotes. A Democrat loss in, a Democratic loss in the 2024 presidential election may well have a catastrophic consequences for the country. We know this, right? We know that there is catastrophic consequences. But I want you to understand the three things that they believe are the pervasive myths that Democrats have been organizing around or have been completely disorganized around, depending on how you look at this picture. But here is what they believe the three things that are leading Democrats astray. Number one, people of color, uh, the grouping of people of color that they all think and act alike. That's number one. Number two, that economics trumps culture. And number three, which is one that I strongly disagree with, a progressive majority is emerging. These are the myths that they outline that Democrats actually need to understand. But I want to read you this as well, because I, I find all of this. So like, I want to scream. This is why I'm taking my time. So this is directly from the article quote, their analysis is a centrist critique of a party that they fear has moved too far to the left. And in the process increasingly has lost touch with the swing voters, right? And I'm using air quotes for those that are listening for the swing voters who still have the power to decide elections. It's publication comes a week after voters in San Francisco recalled three members of the local school board in a battle that underscored the limits of left-wing politics, even in such a liberal city and an outcome that set off alarms inside the party. Galston and Kamrak argue that in an age of close elections, five of the past six were decided by five points or fewer. Mobilizing base voters is not enough to assure success. Now, let me pause right here because that is utter and complete trash. Why do I think that? Because all Republicans do is organize and strengthen their base. 
Their base is white evangelical Christians that they have been pushing forward their agenda for the last four fucking decades. The problem with Democrats isn't that they actually pander to their base, which they don't. All Democrats have been doing over the past three and four decades is pandering to the group of white working class Americans that don't fuck with them and have never fucked with them, right? When have Democrats actually, quote unquote, tried to ensure the success of their base, which is black Americans, Latinx Americans, LGBTQ Americans, those that live at the intersections, young Americans, right? When have they ever offered up policies that have been polled that have said that if you do these things, these people are with you. For instance, fucking voting rights, right? Number two, student loan debt relief. Number three, fucking action on climate change. These are not quote unquote progressive and overreaches in policy. They are actually the fundamentals of creating a secured democracy, right? One that allows people to have financial freedom, one that allows them the liberty that is said in our creed of being able to choose their representatives and to create a government that is foreign by the people. And then the other is tackling, oh, I don't know, the existential of existential crises, which is the fact that our climate isn't just slow pace changing, it is rapidly fucking changing, and we all see it happening now with our own eyes in the same way in the movie, don't look up said there's a comet coming. Oh, but we'll wait until we see it. And it's too late for us to actually make any changes. So these are not liberal ideas. They're the foundation of how you secure a fucking country in a changing world. And so again, stop with the lies. Right. Stop with stop with the analysis that doesn't actually use a racialized lens, which is all that America has ever used, which is why we have such an extreme gap in health and wealth in this country, depending on your race. <sighs> Let me take a breath. Because I am it is this type of critique, dear friends. These type of articles that allow Democrats to have the cover to once again disregard the group that gets them to power in the first place in, right, in exchange for their desire to chase after this very small, fleeting, shrinking class of people, white people. Let me go on. This is what they say. In the report, quote, even though deepening partisanship has reduced the number of swing voters, oh, really? The narrow margins of our recent national elections have made these voters more important than ever. This reality will dominate national politics until one party breaks the deadlock of the past three decades and creates a decisive national majority. Now, let us also once again be very clear about how each of these parties actually think about breaking this deadlock that they are talking about. So how do you have a decisive national majority? If you are a Republican, you roll out 400 voter suppression laws across the country in every single state. That's number one. 
Number two, you roll back policies that Americans actually voted for in places like Florida that would restore voting rights to those that were previously incarcerated. You roll that back, right? You make examples of people who have one, accidentally voted. And if they are people of color, you throw them in jail like they did in Texas for six federal, for six years in federal prison, well over the time that you get for actually killing a black person, right? In these United States. You do everything in your power not to win more votes, but to make sure that those that you know will not vote for you cannot vote. So it is really easy, right? To look at the governorships that are held by a majority of Republicans and decide that you're not looking for new voters, you're looking to restrict the number of people that are able to vote. So again, saying that what will dominate the national politics without unpacking the strategies that both parties are using, one being, both of them being completely and totally legal because we don't make voting um, a fundamental part of our push to secure our democracy. We think that it's a nice to have, right? Oh, it would be nice to name a bill after the late, great John Lewis and then get that passed. But don't you know, we're not going to do it, but we'll keep fighting is what Democrats do. And what I realize here, folks, is that you have two parties, one that is woefully, woefully ineffective, right? And it isn't just with regard to the three ways in which they decide to evade reality. It's the fact that both parties center whiteness. Republicans do so in a way that tells white people that they are aggrieved, that they are owed, right? And that anyone that gets in their way is somehow undeserving, right? And so because they are undeserving, we need to either strip away, right? The laws that allowed them to somehow begin to close these very large gaps, right? In our society. And then you have Democrats on the other hand that want to say to these people, oh, we're fighting for you. We're here for you and give a bunch of lip service, but then actually not put any strategies that are in place because they also don't want to upset white people. So you see who is winning on both sides and who gets completely fucking overlooked and erased and what this article fails to actually recognize and spotlight, which is that truth. Why are the white working class and white wealthy people running to the Republican party? Because not because of economic anxiety, but because of the fact that they are going to lose power in the next few years. And so in order to not lose power, they need to go with the party that is going to create an apartheid situation in the United States once again, so that they remain on top. And then you have the other party that doesn't want to see race right? They are the literal white moderates that, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. warned us about, warned us about, but that we're still dicking around with. That's the situation that we are in. That's the reality. And so it isn't. And then this is, this is what they say that I gotta, (sighs) this is a point that I want to read. And I want to get your thoughts 
on what you think here about what is said and what is not actually said. Democrats, they write, must consider the possibility that Hispanics will turn out to be the Italians of the 21st century, family-oriented, religious, patriotic, striving to to succeed in their adopted country and supportive of public policies that expand economic opportunity without dictating results. They note that ultimately, quote, Italians became Republicans. Democrats must rethink their approach if they hope to retain majority support among Hispanics. So once again, let me break this down. What did Italians do when they came to the United States and there were signs up in windows that said, do not hire Italians after they were literally ghettoized and marginalized? Those same people, right? The ancestors of the people that live in this country now change their fucking names. They change their names and they change their accents, right? And they disavowed themselves of many of their heritages just enough so that they could assimilate into an increasingly hostile and discriminatory country. They were able to do that because you see, they don't wear their differences on the outside like black people do. And so what this statement is saying without actually saying and delving into that reality is that Hispanics will have the opportunity, particularly white Latinos will have the opportunity, right? to, you know, assimilate more into America if they don't align themselves, right, with, say, the immigration movement, with, let's say, the education movement, with, let's say, as long as they recognize that if they align themselves more so to the proximity of whiteness, even though they are not white, that they will fare better that they will be then the next class that people are, the next group that people are chasing, that politicians are chasing. But you see, they can say all of those things without giving the context to the situation in which Italians came to this country, right? It is, it's just so frustrating, folks. Like I am deeply frustrated when I see conversations like this happen. And I am hopeful. I am hopeful that in the coming weeks, we will have the authors of this report on Woke AF because I have real questions that I want to ask because I don't understand how once again, it is being looked at through this quote unquote, neutral white gaze and perspective that disavows racism and race and the complexities of those issues in this country and how it has always been embedded into our politics and into our policies. And if we're not going to tell the truth, then how are we going to come up with a plan that is actually going to fight against this fascist and authoritarianism regime when all you're trying to do is what? Water down said policies that are actually needed to close gaps and to better this country and to strengthen our democracy, how are we going to be able to do these things when we are not telling the truth about the origins of the fucking problem? So coming up next, Jonathan and I will dig into a very in-depth conversation about this, America's existential crises, and whether or not we have the strength, the fortitude, or the desire to try and fix what is broken in America. 
Folks, there is a lot going on in the world, in America, in society, in my own mind uh, right now. And there's no one better to walk us through this than our favorite Wednesday guest, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, um, author of Dying of Whiteness. Jonathan, um, you know, oftentimes when there is so much going on, I always say to the guest, what are you paying attention to? Um, I think that that is like a really uh, heavy question these days, because what are you not paying attention to? You have um, NPR recognizing the fact that we have a new variant, um, B.A.2 of uh, of COVID-19. News broke that, guess what? Boris Johnson has decided that he's rolling back all COVID uh, protections in the, all COVID restrictions in the UK. You have um, impending war happening in Russia, which has been impending at least for the last two months whenever Putin rolled out 150,000 troops um, to encircle the Ukraine. And then that now has made moves about recognizing other parts of the Ukraine as independent vessels to then deflate Ukraine's power as a, as a solo nation. Um, and then the United States deciding that they're going to roll out what, um, more, I, I, I don't even know. So I say all that to say, Jonathan, not to mention the fact that you can get more time in jail for killing a dog or dog fighting like Michael Vick did than Kim Potter did for killing an unarmed uh, young black man at the prime of his life who was also a father. And then you can listen to a judge go off on the empathy for this horrible mistake, a mistake that stole a child from their mother. But let us only look at the tears of white women. So when I say... What are you paying attention to today, I'm making today, a list Jonathan? of all the things here. <laughs> what are you paying attention to? Well, it's a, it's a, we're having a moment on our planet right now. Um, and, and it's not a good moment. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you and I are probably, we should just do this. We should do this show at 3.30 in the morning because I bet you and I are probably both awake. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's just, it's a really hard moment right now because Two things. I will say, first of all, well, I mean, I've been thinking <laughs> a lot about Rocky Four and how how the Russians used to be the bad guy. You know, they killed Apollo Creed mm -hmm. and and um, and they had to pay for that. Um, and then um, and then we had this denouement. Our system won out. It was better. Rocky went to Russia Um you know, he, he promoted change in the final scene of Rocky four. It was a moment where our side was winning and Rocky also, you know, made Ivan Drago pay for, for what he did in a certain kind of way. So think of all the work that went into that, you know, Rocky had trained through three movies. Um, and, but it also represented like, an it's ascendance of our worldview, right? <laughs> in yes. a certain kind of yes. way. So, and, um, you know, I've been teasing my brother loves that movie. So I call him and I quote the final scene of that movie because Rocky says, if yous can change, we's can change, we can all change or something like that. Like I just call and read the Rocky quote. But the thing is, it used to be funny when I would do that all the time to him. And now it's actually not that funny anymore. I mean, maybe it wasn't funny in the first place um, because did we really win? <laughs> you know, um, is that really what happened? Or is the loop of history coming back right now? And so many of us have lived the past, whatever, 30 years thinking that 
the values of our country, which uh, of course have been exposed over the past couple of years and, and much longer for many people. Um, but the values of our country in opposition to the values of, you know, ungoverned, white, aggressive fascism, um, that really we were part of a system that was more vibrant, that people wanted, that allowed creativity and flourishing and all those kind of things. And right now that that seems like it's up for grabs in a way. I mean, you know, it's 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 a moment where we rethink um, our, you know, there's the dominant narrative. The dominant narrative, for example, is, you know, America had a lot of division, but we came together to fight the Nazis and in in World War II, a victory for a new world order, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But there was a sub a subtext um, in, in the United States always of kind of the Charles Lindberghs of the world, the people who were saying, well, the Nazis aren't that bad. Um, it's just that, you know, the minute Pearl Harbor happened, those voices got silenced, but they didn't go away. And so in a way right now, it, it's a it's a really terrifying moment in a way, um, not just because of the acts of a really an, un, an unhinged aggressor, right, at, in, in Russia with a lot of army and nuclear weapons, um, but also because what it represents for our country, right? This idea that basically um, that form of, you know, let's just invade and, and you know, let's just invade Arizona or Wisconsin or something like that. Like, I, I just, I see that that logic kind of taking back over the world uh, now. And so it's happening in Russia, but it's also a reflection of kind of a logic that's happening here. And I guess the, the fear is, is our system strong enough to unify uh, in opposition to that kind of, I mean, this is no, honestly, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, this- I, I mean, it's not, it's, it, I, I think that, you know, what, what has troubled me, Jonathan, um, and this is why I enjoy our conversations because they're not sound bites, right? Because we can actually have a conversation. Yeah. Um, and this, I wish I was better more, at sound bites, but yeah, right. The, like This warrants more than, you know, than, than, than a minute split between three people on the news. Um, is the reality we our, our system isn't strong. And I think that that is the thing that we are all still trying to come to understand is that America's system, political system, all of our systems were based on norms. We're based on a shared belief. You, I saw your tweet um, from from the night before that said, you know, you were talking about Rocky Four, and you're like this: the same shared values that we had in in that in that film. Which, yes, it, it's a it's a boxing movie, but we all know where we were in the Cold War and why it was such like a major thing, right? It's it's the same reason why we feel a, a deep sense or used to feel a deep sense of patriotism around the Olympics, right? Because you get to see America be great at these, you know, at, at these sports. The the reality is is that what what was illuminated, not what Trump created, but what was illuminated during the years of Trump was the fact that Everything that we have known to be true about America was based on a set of false ideals and understandings and a basically handshake deals between both parties that we may not like your overt spending and we may not like your conservatism, but at the end of the day, 
We are Americans. And what does that mean? We believe in freedom. We believe in justice. Now, you can then talk to black Americans and they tell you an entirely different story about the truth about America and its allegiance to justice and liberty and freedom and who has that and who doesn't. You can talk to women, you can talk to poor people and they have a different understanding of those fundamental shared beliefs. But if you were to just take the 50,000 foot view, that's who we were, or that's who we thought this, this idea of perfecting this imperfect union, right? Is that each generation has its work. Now you have an entire party, half of the fucking country is waving Russian flags, thinking that Putin is, is their hero, right? And look at him and how strong he is. And he's a straw man, right? And, and, but it's like, so the question, are our systems strong enough? No, we're not even going to have a free and fair election in, in, in a couple of months, let alone in 2024. So to me, that's not, it's not, are our systems strong enough? It's like, what are we going to do? Because the bad is here and it's not going anywhere. So how do we prepare is, is my question. But do you believe that we're even in the mindset to start talking about preparation when we're still literally looking up? at the, at the comet that's coming towards us. I think there are two ways to answer that. I mean, one way is a soundbite, which is that half the country potentially has more in common with Russia than with the ideal of America that fought world war two and, and mm. liberated concentration camps. Right. That in a way, it's not like we've ever thought there was just one way to be American that we've always had. George Wallace. We've always had mm-hmm. the Birch Society. You know, we've always had that stuff. It's just that there was there was a democratic ideal that won out over those things, and that doesn't seem to be the case right now. And so, um, you know, there there was, and so so partially, I think that it, it's like it's a scary moment, not just because of Russia again, but because of our internal politics, where the where the forces that support those ideals. Um, seem to be on the ropes, you know, right now, um, to continue the metaphor. And, um, and so that's one side of the coin. Um, and, and so in a way, just the idea that we're mobilizing to make Russia pay like sanctions or moving troops to defend our, our allies, you know, that, that requires a kind of uniformity. Now, maybe, Maybe at a time when we're all challenged, we can come together a little more than we're doing. I mean, that would be the optimistic uh, spin on this. Um, but we've just seen when we were all facing the coronavirus that in the face of a common enemy, we, we've become more divided. And, and partially that's because of Russian disinformation, because of what's happened. But it's also because so much crap has been exposed and amplified in this country that it's going to be hard to it's going to be hard to even conceptualize that we're on the same side. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now there was a good piece in the Washington post this morning by some people, I think at Brookings um, that talked about how um, this is a moment really for Democrats to come together completely. Um, there were two interesting points of this article. I thought um, number one is every effort has to be towards saving democracy, not about internal divisions among Democrats. I don't know if that's possible in the democratic party, but it basically said that, um, you know, it, it basically no mystery that you're going to be relegated to perpetual, um, you know, um, resistance party uh, if we if we don't if you don't figure out ways to unify um, and divide and not divide. 
And the other interesting point was, I mean, it used a euphemism that I don't like, social issues, but it said that Democrats had made a mistake, um, assuming that you could unify the party in economic issues um, and not better counter, like basically that we've lost the social issues influencing independent swing voters who decide elections to Republicans in a way. So coming together would also be um, figuring out some common messaging to win elections based on social issues. Now, that's an awful lot considering it's February and the uh, um, and the election is November. <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of a sense of what we're facing right now is a momentous task because this is a moment where that kind of, I mean, it's all in the context of fascism and all these kind of things and the pandemic, but th that kind of turn is happening again in the world. And it's kind of like, number one, how can you fight back? And number two, where is safe? I mean, that's those are the two kind of questions. And the thing is, you know, is wh where is safe, right, is probably to me the most important question to ask because my follow-up would be, well, what does safety actually look like, right? Because safety in this climate, I mean, you're, we named at the top so many different crises that we are facing all at once. Safety looks like what? The ability to have a rocket ship so that you can leave Earth? You know, like is is safety financial freedom when millions of Americans are are, are saddled with student loan debt? Is safety health? You know, uh, in a, in a time when we're at close to an, a million Americans have died of COVID, and we have a completely uh, crumbling, deteriorating healthcare system that can't do the bare minimum, let alone be able to operate at the at a health pandemic. You have politicians that are advertising their candidacy with using actual guns, right? Like, and, and this is this is now the norm. So I, I struggle to understand even what, what we mean collectively when we are talking about safety, because our idea of what feels safe is no longer the same. And and, and I guess for me, in in a part of the issue is what happens to what we've been calling social justice in that context, right? So mm -hmm. many things have been exposed and illuminated over the past couple of years. And, and there has been a lot of effort to recognize the inequities in our society. Um, and, but, but I, but I, I feel like when we're faced with such an urgent threat um, from an external, you know, it, I think the other question that I think we'll be asking over the next 50 years <laughs> um, is uh, is what happens to internal politics, right? In a way, what's what's the impact going to be on on education, on efforts to um, address inequity? Um, and, and I think you know, there's there's really it's it's kind of you know, I just think of Martin Luther King's debate about chaos versus community. Like, what is, what are mm -hmm. the people who care about social justice? Do they do they rebel against the system? Do they say to hell with everything? Is this a protest movement where mm -hmm. a balkanized protest movement? Um, or is this let's win elections because we're in a democracy and you and you enact change by winning elections and appointing judges and stuff like that? And I think, you know, that that's a that's a kind of urgent question. It's ironically the same question. Yep. Um, but um, but the stakes are, believe it or not, even higher right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, the issues are worse in, in some, in some parts of the country, you know, people don't have water, they don't have safety. And so the question's going to be, 
like what what's the response right do is the response in the system or is the uh, the response a kind of giving mm. up on the system and i think that that i think mm. that that's that's pretty urgent right i mean are people do people want to be in a perpetual state of resistance to america right now or do they want to try to come together to save america and i and i think that's not an easy question given everything we know about america at this moment God, Jonathan, those are really good um, and really existential, right? Questions that, you know, for so long, I feel like people like you and I, who've been having these conversations for the last two years, have been told in so many ways that we are hyperbolic, that elections will continue, democracy will continue, the pandemic will end, life will go back to what it was. Um, and two years later, here we are. And things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. We were waiting on a vaccine. Okay, the vaccine came and 25% of the population doesn't want to take it. Um, we thought that we were going, we were in a, a good place as it pertains to race relations. Then we all collectively watched in the midst of a pandemic, a black man be murdered in broad daylight by a police officer. And we still had to cross our fingers and our toes, hoping that that police officer would go to jail for what we all witnessed collectively. And so, you know, the question is, we have so many questions and there aren't a lot of solutions to the moment that we're in because we've never been here before. And even if we're using history as our guide, the confluence of all of these things, right, is what's making it really impossible to come up with a step-by-step -step plan to deal with one thing over here when there are 85 behind it. So I guess, you know, the real question for Democrats as we march into the inevitable loss of midterm elections and then the inevitable loss of the presidential in 2024 and the inevitable loss is like, what does what does it mean to be safe in a country that is becoming increasingly unsafe? Do we still profess to look at look after solely the individual or are we interested now in actually looking at the collective in recognizing that we do need community because I'll tell you that one of the things I think was is the major downfall of America is this bullshit idealization of the the rugged individualism if we actually were were more community minded we're more thinking about the collective and the betterment of the whole. We wouldn't be in a lot of these situations that we're in. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, and and you know, to even make it even more cheerful, it's also going to be in the context of a of a world that rewards um, unbridled aggression, right? I mean, I think that I think that the reason this stuff in Ukraine matters so much is because. It really is potentially the first domino of many to fall, um, and I just don't mean Russia. You know, China um, and and the United States in a certain kind of way. Um, and so, in a way, it's kind of like the stakes of of thinking in a in a collective way. They've never been more important, and they've also never been more difficult. Right? The, the you know you don't have the luxury of trying to figure it out um you know and and so i i feel like you know just a lot of things are happening at one time right now and and it, and it makes sense you know our conversations over the past two years really are leading <laughs> to what's happening now in a way yep i totally agree with that um but but it's it's just like the, the, the where do you go from there it, you know it's funny i i don't want to 
I did a book club last night for Dying of Whiteness, and the people mm-hmm. were amazing. It was an incredible conversation. Um, and I was talking about how, you know, the kind of core argument of the book that as a trade-off for a position atop a social hierarchy, white Americans were being asked and willingly trading away their own lifespans. Um, and And people still couldn't get their heads around it. They kept saying, is it a cult? Is there a is there a DSM diagnosis for Trump? Um, is there, um, is there, um, like, is this their anxiety about being the demographic minority in, you know, in 50 years or 40 years or whatever? Um, and I kept saying, you know, I love that. I wish that was the case. Honestly, if they, it was just a mental illness, we could just treat the mental illness. But really what it is, is a power grab. Uh, what they're doing yep. is they're, they're grabbing power. And, if we pathologize them or moralize using yeah. public health and saying, look at how dumb they are, they're not getting the vaccine, you kind of miss the point that it's a it's a power grab. And so the question is, the response to a power grab is not to show vaccine unvaccinated charts, you know, it's actually to respond with power. And, and I, the example I gave was um, the, mm. all, all the nonsense for the critical race theory stuff for school boards that um the minute they started pulling the crt stuff our response was to respond to it in content to say oh critical race theory it's only mm-hmm. from law schools from the 70s the minute that happened we lost in other words you know the, the a better response would have been the minute that, that people started showing up to school boards 100 people showed up to school boards yelling at the school board members we show up 7,000 people to every school board in support of having different kinds of books in the library and being able to have academic freedom. In other words, where was the mobilization, the mass mobilization in support of our ideals? Like I, I can't remember that happening one time. Like, was there a mass mobilization in response to libraries banning books? Was it, you know, it, I, I don't know. Because so, we all think it's somebody else's responsibility, but yeah. please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a way it's easy to say, Oh, it's a mental illness or, Look mm-hmm. how dumb they are for not getting things. But the thing is, we're in a power struggle, and so when 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 they're when all the only video of school boards is people saying throw away the books from the library, and not ten thousand people showing up and saying we support having lots of books in the library, you know that that's kind of where you lose, right? It's it's not about debating the merits of critical race theory. Um, I mean, we should do that also, but but it's like the minute you're doing that, you're on you're already playing defense and you really need to be playing offense. So I don't know. It's just interesting that even now when I do dying of whiteness things, like uh, what I said in the book club was I'm actually arguing against the conclusions of my own book <laughs> and people will argue with me trying to get me to make arguments I made two years ago. And I'm like, no, that's not, you know, I'm arguing against myself. So it's, it's a weird time, man. And, but I think that that's, it, it's so smart though, Jonathan, because what you, what you are modeling in that book club is the fact that like the world around us is evolving, that there is no idea that is um, immovable, right? Like it, it just isn't. And it takes, you know, recognition and vigilance to recognize that 
what I thought two years ago is not reality now. That's the problem. If you want to, it's not a diagnosis, but that's part of the problem of where we are, where Republicans want to drag America backwards in the hope that they can stop evolution, that they can stop progress, that they can stop a demographic shift. If we don't talk right about America's origin story, if we continue to whitewash it, if we gaslight the entire nation and generations to come and then remove books, remove education, remove enlightenment, remove critical thinking, right? It is, it, it's about power and it's about control because you, you, if you know nothing, right. And you believe that the people that you represent are actually there for your goodwill, but they're not right. Then like you're easy to control and manipulate, particularly when the basis, like your, the systems that are supposed to be there to protect you, like our education system, our healthcare system, our environmental system, all of these things are broken down. Then your basic needs aren't even being met. So then what happens, right? Violence right? Like, so all of these things are bubbling up. We're watching it on a macro scale happen in the Ukraine, but to your point, it's happening in the United States. We just don't call them invasions, but I don't know what else you would call what we have seen at school boards. I don't know what else you would call the insurrection. I don't know what else you would call the overtaking of the Capitol building in Michigan in 2020. If those aren't those in, if we're not using the language to describe what is happening, then we definitely do not have the strategy in place to stop it. And also to rebuild the structures that support you know, like think of how much work went into building the public school system, for example, after Brown versus Board of Education, right? Massive, massive mobilization of effort and resources and talent. Um, and so I don't know who's defending those structures right now, because those are the structures that support our worldview. I, I actually don't agree that it's going backwards. Um, I think that it's it's a power grab in, in a certain kind of way that in, in a way. Um, we, we have to see it as a zero-sum formulation in a way. Now, it feels awfully regressive, right? Because it's anti-scientific, anti-expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, but I don't know, part of what's happening is they're making liberal America or the United States, if you think of the Russian approach right now, um, pay a high price for supporting pluralistic democracy or social mm-hmm. programs. Those become very costly in the face of trying to defend yourself, right? So it turns with the strength of liberal America into lia- into real liabilities in a way. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what's your response? And and again, I, with all due respect, I mean, I'm, I'm a scholar of critical race theory, right? I've built my career on it. Um, but, but I would also say that defending critical race theory is, is not where we need to be right now. It's every time that happens, you mobilize and you support that ideal and you support that structure. I just feel like critical race theory is a textbook example right now of how we we got derailed and did not support it or fight back in a way that really took um you know you know that that's obviously an effort to control school boards um and and defund education um but but we're too easily derailed. I mean, I think everybody should read that Washington Post piece this morning even though many people won't agree with it. Um just to just to see about what kind of what's at stake. I mean, Jonathan, there is so much that is at stake, and I know that we do our very best not to present um, a 
a, a doom and gloom perspective. But the reality is, is that if you are not concerned, if you're not up at 3 a.m., um, you're not really paying attention. And I do believe in balance, trust me. Um, but I also believe that these times are going to get uh, continue to get more and more increasingly perilous. And the question is, what can you do, right, um, as individuals, as part of communities to keep yourself safe and examine what that safety looks like in order to be able to make it to the other side? Because the road that we are on, dear friends, uh, is going to be a long and rough one. Uh, Jonathan, we just appreciate each and every week that you are on this road with us. Um, and so we will see what happens next week. Appreciate you. Take care, everybody. And WWRD, what would Rocky do? I have beat the shit out of somebody. <laughs> yeah, I would assume. Like that. <laughs> Folks, and now for your woke moment of wellness before we close out the show. These articles, these conversations that we are having can be incredibly debilitating. And I mean this, I say this all of the time. And I talked to you yesterday about feeling guilty with just resting, just laying down on my couch. And so this morning I decided to do a very lengthy meditation. Usually I do, you know, if I have time, about five to 15 minutes, right? Yes, this morning I decided to do one that was over 30 minutes. Because I realized that my, my vibration is out of whack right now. That any time that I take a little bit of a break and then dive back in, it's like all of my nerve endings are on overload. And what I recognize is that for me to be able to focus on what the service is that I am offering, what my purpose is on this planet for as long or as little time as we have left, I need to be able to steady myself, right? You want to vibrate highly because you are aligned with the most high. You don't want to be jittery and all over the place because you are taking on all of the negative and toxic energy that is around you. So for folks who have yet to try meditation um, or yoga or any type of stillness, I just recommend each and every day finding time to just be still and breathe. Whether you're listening to a guided meditation or you have singing bowls that you, you know, that you play or what have you, but just trying your best to put on a timer on your phone, to sit still for two minutes and just breathe right? And just ground because you will find that in these challenging times that that is going to be a skill that we are going to need to develop. That if you can find yourself grounded and centered in the midst of, in the midst of chaos and conflict, that is going to be how we win, how we win internally, how we stay healthy and how we continue to stay focused. That dear friends is your woke moment of wellness. That is it for me today, dear friends on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.